not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power of weakness head on. Everyone and welcome to the Bobble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog, Unpickled, and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today, I'm holding space for a friend of mine named Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. It's so wonderful to be with you. I'm happy you're here. We're far away friends. We live across, well, across the country and across the border from each other, so it's a long way between us. It's a treat to hear your voice. Yeah. So always wonderful to hear your voice. Of course, I know your voice much better than you know mine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in your ears. (laughs) Well, thanks for taking the time to be here today. And I asked you to come and tell your story and you were kind enough to do that. So I'm going to turn the mic over to you, Kathy. Tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Thank you, Jean. It really is my pleasure. So I'm a 66-year-old woman who enjoys traveling and playing tennis, um, and I like to ski out west, which you also share uh, a love of um, in the winter. And I also enjoy gardening and cooking healthy food. I worked as a physical therapist, but am now retired. I have been twice widowed and did not have children. My first husband was diagnosed with a neurological illness similar to Parkinson's. He lived with this debilitating movement disorder for eight years and died at the age of 49. I was 43. My life changed for the better when I met my second husband. We enjoyed traveling the world and making improvements on our home and gardens. Unfortunately, I lost him three years ago to colon cancer. Fortunately for me, neither one of my husbands were big drinkers. It's possible I would have been a bigger it would have been a bigger problem for me if they had been. I grew up the youngest of five children in a loving family. My mother didn't drink much, but my dad enjoyed his cocktails mostly on the weekends until he retired and began to drink more frequently. Dad used to say children should learn to drink at home. He would make a point of having only one and a half drinks. It's interesting to me now to realize he was actually modeling moderation. I can't say it ever occurred to me earlier that he might have been worried about his own drinking. I would say he moderated for many years, much like I tried to do. It worked for him for quite a while, but of course, alcohol is is addictive, and his drink glasses got larger, and he drank more frequently. Saturdays and Sundays were the big drinking days for my family. I remember when the big half gallons of gin in the liquor cabinet would come out. My three brothers would join in with their various bottles of scotch or vodka. Interestingly, I was never tempted to sneak a drink, but I was definitely noticing their attraction to drinking. We were all golfers and would enjoy watching golf tournaments on TV with our little bowls of salty snacks. I think my own drinking habits were partly an attempt to recreate that feeling of home. It's funny to me now to think that I continue to recreate the feeling with my daily habit of drinking a kombucha and snacking on cashews. It's my treat, and it feels familiar, and again, it reminds me of home. My three brothers ended up having varying levels of addiction. My oldest brother was probably in the end stages of alcoholism. He had some health issues and a couple of hospitalizations. As a result, he ended up moving into assisted living, where the staff took the approach of dosing him a small amount of alcohol 
three times a day. I had never heard of this before, but it has worked wonders for him. I don't talk with him very frequently, but just the other day I spoke with him and he sounded so much better and more upbeat. He has even expressed a desire to see us, his siblings. My two other brothers had times in their lives where they drank too much, but I think their wives influenced them to reduce their drinking. My first experience with alcohol wasn't really until I graduated from high school and drank screwdrivers. I remember enjoying the feeling, but ended up getting sick the next day. Nothing worse than vomiting orange juice. <laughs> I, I don't remember how much I drank, but I question now if my first time drinking could be considered binge drinking. I didn't have an opportunity to drink anymore that summer until I started college. Drinking wine was just becoming a cool thing to do. My boyfriend and I would go to a park and bring a picnic of cheese and crackers and drink wine feeling so sophisticated. Isn't it interesting that we think of drinking as sophisticated, yet when someone is drunk, they're anything but sophisticated? I married young and continued drinking only occasionally. As I got older, my drinking became more and more regular. In the 70s, there was more pot smoking than drinking, but I found pot made me feel anxious and paranoid. Alcohol had the exact opposite effect. I remember others enjoying pot, and I wished I did mainly because of the calories in alcohol. I was always worried about my weight and worked hard to not gain weight. I look back on it now as such a waste of time and attention. In my teens and early 20s, I was bulimic, and because of it, I was having heart arrhythmias due to an electrolyte imbalance. Fortunately, I had come to the conclusion on my own that the problems were linked, even though my doctor didn't suspect it or never questioned me about it. I listened to your guest, Jean, Dr. Heidi Dalzell, and wasn't surprised to hear drinking and eating disorders are related. I had such a strong desire to be in control of my weight that drinking provided me relief. After a day of imposing rules of how much I could eat, it felt so good to let go by drinking. A couple of times when I did Weight Watchers, I think I drank more because of a glass of wine was only two points. Drinking was becoming a way to cope with the feelings of loneliness and dealing with the struggles of life, especially with my first husband's health issues. My sister's husband had young onset Parkinson's, and after watching what she was going through as a caregiver and being a support to her, my husband was diagnosed with it at the age, young age of 41. I was 35. I used alcohol to deal with the horror of watching him lose muscular control of his body. He was very athletic, having been a scratch golfer and a really good skier. It was heartbreaking to watch him falling or getting so frozen. He could be stuck leaning over the couch for an hour, unable to right himself if I wasn't home. There were also money worries when we had to go on disability and needed care. He needed care when I was working. His disease was progressive and the future just looked so bleak. I met my second husband soon after my husband died, not intending to meet anyone so soon. But after being a caregiver and being young, I was ready to live again. My second husband enjoyed wine, but was a normal drinker. I only remember him getting drunk once or twice in our nearly 20 years together. He was a business owner, and I had to adjust to his long hours at work. I would drink while I was making dinner and would end up drinking too much, waiting for him to come home. I was also drinking out of just the loneliness of I had stopped working and um, being home alone. When he was diagnosed with colon cancer in 2014, my drinking escalated from two to three glasses of wine a night to occasionally a bottle. Watching him soldier through the side effects of chemo was difficult to watch. During this time, I felt so guilty about my drinking that I would make promises to myself that I would only drink two glasses of wine at night, but I would often go against my word. 
My husband was so strong throughout his chemo treatments, but succumbed in 2017, two days after our mutual birthdays on July 13th. Needless to say, it is a very difficult time of year for me. After he died, I would frequently down a bottle of wine at night, but still was able to function the next day, or at least I thought I was. That was a sign to me that my tolerance had gone up because I was drinking too much. I have to add that I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2009. I knew it wasn't good for me to drink alcohol and still couldn't quit. Alcohol was fueling my bad decisions. I wasn't being truthful true to myself and my core values of health and wellness. Like many of your listeners, Jean, I found myself going online to see if I was an alcoholic. I resisted thinking of myself as one. I hadn't had any of the usual consequences like difficulty functioning in life or having a DUI, but I knew I had become dependent on drinking. During my web search, I found a rehab counselor and was able to stop drinking for a month with her help. She encouraged me to go to AA. Uh, I found a group that I liked, but unfortunately, a man in the group started to talk about Jesus Christ. This triggered me a little bit because I knew that AA does not affiliate with any particular religion. But it did trigger me enough to stop going. After seeing the therapist and stopping for a month, I had a vacation coming up and decided to see if I could moderate my drinking. I remember being successful for a while, drinking no more than two glasses of wine at night. Unfortunately, it didn't take long before I was back to my previous drinking habits. After that, I knew for sure I could not control my drinking and that if I ever started to drink again, I would feel so disappointed in myself that I would easily get into dysfunctional drinking. I always felt better, especially a half hour into drinking, but noticed that it didn't work as well the more I drank. I've taken antidepressants for many years and knew that it was wrong to drink with them. In my mind, I normalized drinking because of the messaging from my father and culture. In fact, in the movies, there are those frequent scenes where alcohol is used to deal with pain. I had a lot of shame around drinking. I was embarrassed buying six packs of wine every week at the grocery. My husband was noticing and becoming more critical of how much I was drinking. I occasionally put empty bottles in the trash rather than the recycling bin to hide the amount I was drinking from him. He would take the recycling into work since we didn't have recycling at home. I cringe thinking about him having to place each bottle in the slot. Alcohol was causing a lot of shame, but also was what I was using to numb myself from the shame. My father used shame as a way to keep our family of five kids in line, and in my opinion, I think the Catholic Church reinforced it. This is partly why AA didn't work for me. Much of my adult life, I had to work on feeling and owning my own power, and it just didn't work for me to hear that I was powerless over alcohol. In fact, it didn't make sense to believe that I was powerless over alcohol if I was ever going to quit. Drinking wasn't consistent with my core values of health and fitness, and I was becoming more worried about my memory. I had to own it, as you put it in your song, Jean. I knew I couldn't continue drinking and be true to myself. Also, my sister was becoming more and more worried about my drinking. She became very concerned one night when I had drunk wine too fast and ended up vomiting. It was right after my husband died and I just wanted to take the pain away. After using alcohol to cope with my grief, I decided to stop drinking on the 4th of July in 2018, one year after he died. I found the bubble hour and listened incessantly while gardening, doing projects around the house, and while driving. Jean, your soft, kind voice and the stories of your guests were just what I needed. I related to so many of your guests, and I learned so much from the experts you've had on from time to time. I also found the app Sober Grid. The ritual of checking in every day provided the structure and accountability that had worked for me when I had done Weight Watchers. 
With the Sober Grid app, there are four steps. It starts with a daily inspiration, which sometimes can feel that it is written just for me. Next is a mood check-in, which can be shared with the online community. The third step, which I think is one of the most helpful things for me, is writing a gratitude list. I make a, a practice to list five things. The practice of listing what I am grateful for is key because of my history of depression. I feel it helps me to balance my brain. The fourth step is to read and comment on others' posts. It's gratifying and helpful to me to write something supportive because it makes me feel that I'm giving back. I feel confident I won't use alcohol to cope with my emotions, especially since I was able to do it just one year into grieving my husband's death. It has now been two years and four months, and I am not tempted to drink, even, these, even during these strange times. When I say I'm not tempted, I mean I don't crave it. It scares me to imagine what could happen to me if I started drinking again, especially since I live alone. So just to recap, this is what's helped me to stop drinking. Having the experience of stopping and then starting back up taught me I couldn't moderate. Plus, it took so much effort to stop. I don't ever want to have to stop again. Jean, when I found the bubble hour, I felt like I had come home. I needed a supportive environment, not a shaming one. Being okay with feeling pain sitting in it for a little while, and not having to make it go away. Then I do my best not to stay below the line by reaching out for support, reading, watching movies, or doing yoga. I'm also blessed to have found a support group with a wonderful group of ladies I met at a She Recovers retreat at Kerpalu in the Berkshire Mountains in western Massachusetts. We keep in contact by phone, Zoom meetings, a private Facebook group, and have met for long, for a couple of long weekends. My treat at the end of the day, again, is to have my kombucha hour, and that's the non-alcoholic kind. Be careful with that, because they do have that on the shelves right next to it. And then, of course, my salty snack. Meditating, I really like the app Calm, and also checking in daily with my app Sober Grid. Jean, I can't express how grateful I am that I found you and your podcast, and I thank you for this opportunity to tell my story. This experience of reflecting back has helped me to understand my drinking problem better, and it's been a way for me to honor myself for the accomplishment of finally quitting drinking. Thanks, Jean. Oh, thank you, Kathy. Thank you for your story and for your honesty. You talked about a lot of things there that resonate with me. You know, I lost my dad to Parkinson's a few years ago, and I know your your husband's disease was something a little bit different, but the degeneration, I mean, watching someone you love leave slowly, I've often described it as letting out a kite string a little at a time. It's like every day you say goodbye and watch them get a little bit farther away from you. I can certainly understand using alcohol to cope or needing a coping strategy and reaching for alcohol because we're told it's the answer. I'm wondering, now that you have removed that coping strategy from your life, I hope you never have to face anything so hard again, but life is life and we all go through hard things. What coping strategies do you have at the ready for difficult times in the future? I think my um, the first thing I do is I reach out to my sister, Mary. She has just been um, so supportive. She's She was really partly my mother. She's six years older and uh, just has always been there and always been my cheerleader. Although I have to say, when my husband was diagnosed with Parkinson's, basically. It was really difficult because she already was suffering dealing with her husband. It just, it seemed cruel to me that that would happen. I mean, obviously it's it's, it's like winning the lottery in the wrong direction, but 
it was difficult because we both were needing someone and we had been each other's best supporters. So my husband died first. Uh, he had it for only eight years. Her husband had it for, I think it was 25 years. So she definitely had the long haul. And other than reaching for her, when my parents were alive, they, they helped me quite a bit with my husband. But now that I'm alone, I, um, I find podcasts for sure. And the meditating, I do well for a while. And then sometimes I stop and then I start up again. And I'm currently doing it again. And I can really feel the difference. And then the gratitude um, journaling, I think, is key. I, especially right now during the pandemic, I feel if we can stop and think about what is beautiful in life or what is making you happy or just noticing and not thinking, you know, the thinking, thinking is what gets me into trouble. And so, but it's, it's, I do yoga and I know, you know, it's a practice, right? You have to. The more you do it, the the easier it is to to get into the rhythm of it. And so I it is just a practice and I just keep trying. <laughs> Talk a little bit more about gratitude, your gratitude journaling. What process do you use? Do you write four things in the morning and four things at night, write pages and pages or just little bullet points? How do you do it? I really just have the one time in the morning when I'm doing my Sober Grid app. I do, throughout the day, try to notice and say thank you, especially when something special is happening. I uh, I just try to notice it, and I'll say thank you, God. But really, it's, it's just as simple as writing it down, even once a day. I think I think it's been enough for me to help me. It's It's interesting that you say that your gratitude takes the form of saying thank you, God, sometimes, because you also mentioned earlier that mm -hmm. you felt yourself really pushing away from the religious upbringing that you experienced that was more shame-based. And even that when an AA group you were going to had somebody that was more religious in it, that that made you push away. So you still have a spiritual connection even if it looks a little different than what you grew up with. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I um, I think the church was in a too much of an authoritarian um, and, quite honestly, male-dominated group, organization. I would say my mother really did a lot of studying of metaphysics, and she had women's groups that she would be involved in. And, you know, the idea of a, a higher power, you know, and I know in AA that, in fact, I think a lot of the things that she would talk about are, are found in AA. I just, I, you know, I, I, I don't say that I'll never get involved with AA. I think I would probably do better with a women's group. But I do feel I have had things happen in my life because I felt like I was using the creative power of God, you know, God not being a, a being, but God being everything. I have more of a pantheistic view now. I think organized religion, unfortunately, has turned me off. And I, but yet I still understand it can be a very supportive community for people. And I think when people have troubles, a community can come and help people, you know, to cope with tragedies or difficulties in life. So I, uh, I just think for myself, I like to believe that the power is in, within me and that I am trying to bring it forth, trying to chip away at the things that aren't godlike in myself. Mm, I like that idea. So that leads me to the next thing I want to talk about, which is therapy. Do you still go to therapy or did you just sort of use that temporarily? I do. At the moment, I am seeing a woman. had a lot of difficulty in the beginning of the pandemic. And sometimes I think it has to do with the, the winter. You know, I 
I may have a little seasonal affective disorder, but by the time March rolls around and, you know, we have a lot of gray days here in the Midwest, I think having had therapy and having that support, it, it really helped me to pull out of it. And uh, I, I had gone off my antidepressants last fall. And again, I think the reason I was able to try to do that is because I'd had the summer to sort of build up, feel better. And then, um, you know, I, I felt like I could do it. And I, I did quite well. But unfortunately, I, I did have to start back up again. And I've done that a few times where I've tried not taking them and I've had to start back up. So I just really need to use them. I, my um, sister uses antidepressants and my other brother does. And I think the oldest probably would have benefited from them. I think possibly he wouldn't have used alcohol. But the therapy, definitely, I used it when my first husband was ill. That was, um, I just, I definitely needed that help and, and support. Then when my parents died, I, I used therapy again. But I, I definitely have benefited from it, and uh, I wouldn't hesitate to use therapy to get through life. <laughs> I love therapy. <laughs> I wish it was free mm -hmm. and I, I wish everybody did it. I wish it was just as easy as getting groceries because mm -hmm. I have just found it so helpful. Mm -hmm. I haven't gone that much actually, but when I have gone, it's been so enormously helpful. It's been shocking. I find that it really helps me to see where I'm way off, like way off, <laughs> lost in my own story and thinking that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. some paradigm that I grew up with is the mm -hmm. truth or the, you know, the only answer. And maybe because I'm someone who's really other focused and really gets my identity from other people that I need that therapist role to help me understand myself. <laughs> But I found it just so enlightening. Was that your experience mm -hmm. as well? Or what have been some of the tools that have come out of it for you that have been helpful? Well, I think truly, I, I had to learn that I had feelings. I had to learn to put words to them. I mean, I, I literally did. And I've talked to people that sometimes they don't know I don't have feelings. You know, they, they're convinced. <laughs> <laughs> that they don't they aren't sad or that they're not angry and and i unfortunately i think culturally for men it's it's quite damaging for them to not be able to admit and recognize their feelings we all have them <laughs> and uh, so just learning to uh acknowledge them was a big step for me I, you know just some really different kind of things happen. Like once I was telling, uh, actually the first therapist I saw, I was talking about something sad, but I was smiling when I was talking about it. And she pointed it out to me and I go, really? You know, it's like, there you, there's a people pleasing um, behavior for you. <laughs> Other than just recognizing my feelings and learning that, uh, Basically, feelings are neither good nor bad. They just are. And that feelings can't hurt you. And I think a lot of us just sometimes don't think we can survive feeling mm -hmm. the sadness, for instance, that we have. Or, or even, even the anxiety. We don't. It, it's feeling our feelings is not going to hurt us. I think I've had more anxiety about anxiety. <laughs> You know, you, yeah, right. <laughs> I know that. Oh, no, uh -huh. it's going to be one of those days. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh-huh. Or like going to sleep. I think lately I've talked to a few people about going to bed during this time. You know, it, it, it's just it's an angst-filled time in our lives. And uh, 
I worry about that. I'll go to sleep. Oh, I hope I'm not going to, you know, let my, I hope my mind doesn't go on and on and worry about this or that. Do you have trouble sleeping? I do. I just feel like I have to have, I have to have sleep. I just don't like the way I feel if I haven't had sleep. I have learned something new for me, which is just getting up. If I can't sleep, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, now I'm retired, right? So my kids Mm -hmm. are gone and life has changed, but it was a years after I retired before I figured out that, you know, I don't have to get up for work tomorrow. If I can't sleep, I can get up and read a book. And I have this special jar of Ovaltine. I don't know if you have Ovaltine in the U.S. Do you know what that is? Yeah, I do. It's uh-huh. like this milky kind of kind of chocolatey malty drink that you mix with milk. And so I'll make myself a cup of Ovaltine. I save it for my middle of the night. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, that sounds like uh, a perfect antidote. Yeah. Right? I'll go downstairs and I'll read a chapter in my book. And it's almost like... I just, I do this nice little thing for myself and Uh it's actually so nice that I have to remember to try to go back to sleep and not just wake up in the middle of the night and, (laughs) oh, Uh I'm awake. (laughs) Uh, Reason, an excuse to get up, but it's it's Mm -hmm. kind of nice to do these sweet little things for ourselves. And I think that's what we were trying to do with alcohol, isn't it? We were trying to comfort and and give ourselves self-care and we just have to be a little more Mm -hmm. inventive now and uh, I love that Mm -hmm. you found these apps that work for you and we were giggling before we started recording that you said you're not the most technological person but look at you you found podcasts you found apps that support your recovery so that's Mm -hmm. definitely as technical Mm -hmm. as you need to be well, it's it's worked for me. It definitely has broadened my uh, my world and enhanced my life for sure. We talked a little bit. You mentioned some some special sober friendships that you have with other women from the group that met in Kripalu, and I actually was the leader of that group. I was at Kripalu for that event, leading that women's retreat, and met all of you ladies who didn't mm-hmm. know each other then and now have become uh, quite a close-knit group. And, and in fact, I don't think I've ever had a retreat group stay together the way that this particular group has. Usually there's, you know, a few relationships that come out of it and friendships that get built, but for the whole group to, most of the whole group to, to stay in touch and stay supportive is really quite something there have been some fun meetups. I haven't been able to go because I live way too far away, but talk about those kinds of friendships. And, and what about the friendships, uh, other friends that you have from before you quit drinking? How have those friendships evolved? Well, to talk about the Kripalo group a little bit, that group was off and running so fast. Um, and I credit you with with why it became such a close-knit group because we we just didn't hold back on sharing. We knew we were there to share. And what's the point of, of going and <laughs> committing to something like that and, and not talking about it? And, you know, even with what I've shared, I mean, I don't really like to admit to the fact that I had bulimia. I mean, it's just sort of a gross thing. But it's freeing to share your secrets. That's how we, I think, got to be so close. We all can relate to one another's stories. Of course, we have a, a couple of really special members. One is a, a therapist. Another one is a recovery blogger and a coach. And so it, it helps to have people who you know are professionals and some wonderful things to add. And then just... Uh, you know, we're, we're mixed in terms of ages, but there's um, currently uh, one of the members is going through a, a divorce. It's just happening right now, in fact. And another one that just separated from her husband. We're there to support them during these difficult times. And not everybody abstains totally, but I think ones that are participating are drinking very much. So. Everyone has, I would say, um, that have kept in contact, greatly reduced their drinking or have stopped. 
So that's pretty remarkable. <laughs> I know statistically, right? <laughs> that's that's pretty pretty good. You know, that brings up kind of an interesting point too. Is it can be hard when you're in a recovery group and supporting one another. All of us, you know, with our heart's desire to to be sober and have recovery and be alcohol free. And when some people are struggling with that and um, unsuccessfully moderating, (laughs) that can really take a group down. It can be really hard because it can either trigger other people who think, Mm -hmm. well, maybe I ought to relapse too. Or there can be shame or there can be ridicule. And as you say, there's there's different levels of experience and and time in recovery in this group. And so I feel like there's a lot of strength in that group to be mm-hmm. able to continue to hold space and lovingly accept and support people wherever they're at on their journey. And I think that's what we all kind of aspire to, but sometimes recovery groups don't do as well with that because every group is really, you know, a patchwork of the personalities that make it up. And somebody who has a real need to be dogmatic and shame-based for their own recovery to succeed can try to project that onto other people and it can really backfire. So I've learned that about myself. I really struggled when I was first blogging and first in recovery groups that I just didn't know what to say when people relapsed or chose not to be sober because I I didn't know how to not be black and white about it. And it is hard to say that when we believe that we do our best in recovery when we're alcohol-free. It's hard to choose that for ourselves and still hold space for other people to find their own way. But it's the only way I think people can figure it out is for themselves. We can't we can't make that decision for other people. Has it ever made you feel wobbly to be around? You know what I mean by wobbly? I mean, has it ever made you question your own resolve in general to be around people that are struggling? Do you find that that's hard for you? Or are you able to stay focused on your own recovery? Um, I guess, I guess I may have felt a little like, well, why can't I moderate the way they moderate? I mean, there are, you know, maybe three people that I know that, um, don't drink that much now, but obviously drank a lot before. And, um, you know, I'm thinking it would be nice to be able to just drink like a, have a couple of drinks and then not want it again. But I I just don't think it would work because I did it once before. And sure enough, the more, you know, you, you start with one or two a night and then, you know, it just is addictive. And it's, it's like, I have the same thing with sweets. If I eat sweets, the more I eat, uh, the more I want. And uh, I just, I guess I I just know that about myself, and I don't think I'm that unusual in that, but I just don't want to have to stop again, <laughs> and and I don't crave it now, so it's not really a problem. You know, I still have a lot to learn uh, in terms of how to handle when I'm in a dark place, um, other than reaching out, which I do, and I got therapy and then decided I needed to go back on antidepressants. So, you know, I take care of myself pretty well. And I don't know if there really are (laughs) answers to all of life's problems in in a particular group. Um, I I know some of the steps for AA and I I think I've I've done a lot of that growth already or just on my own and through therapy. But sometimes I wonder if there could be things that I could be doing that, you know, have have more um, techniques to help me get through the dark times. When you've lived long enough, you, you know that they don't last forever. Even with grief and losing your husband, um, your partner, your, you know, and your, your life changes so drastically, you still have good days and you still, you, you have joy and you, you can enjoy life. And it's not always dark. It it eases. I just have 
faith now that even if it hurts at the moment, it, it's it's going to get better. You know, that's not being Pollyannish or or you know positive just to be positive. It just it's been the way it's been. <laughs> it's, what are some things that give you joy, Kathy? Well, I love traveling. I've had some wonderful trips. I had wonderful trips with my husband, but I've had some really fun ones with my sister. And I love going out west skiing. I, I really like sports. I like to move my body. I like the way it feels and the beauty around my house. I live in a wooded setting and uh, beautiful artwork outside. They're actually photographs, botanical photographs that are on aluminum and they can be outdoors all year long and I look out there and one of them I have designated as my husband's memorial and uh, I have lights that shine on them in the uh, at night so I love art and beauty good food that gives me joy what's your uh, specialty you know I think some fun things I make, I make a really good fish taco with mango salsa, and uh, I like um, peanut sauce now. I'm sort of doing Thai food, and I try to eat mostly plant-based, but I'll, I'll put seafood in it. And uh, But just for myself, I made broccoli and cauliflower and red pepper in this wonderful peanutty kind of sweet uh, peanut sauce and it's just delicious you know it's a little different when you're plant-based yeah I like things that are not not just simple now you live alone do you cook a big meal for yourself will you set the table and and, or do you stand over the sink or what uh... yeah (laughs) yeah that those are the two ends of the spectrum I'm about in the middle (laughs) I you know what I I confess I don't eat at a table I like to sit in my big chair that I like to read in and it's you know I have it on my lap and my cat's on my lap and so (laughs) but uh yeah I do cook I I cook real food I I uh generally you know will make like a soup or something and I'll have leftovers or yeah, I have to have a real meal. I feel like that's a yeah. form of self-care too, just nourishing our bodies. And it's something that's easy to overlook because, you know, I'm used to cooking for a family and we often, when it's not mm-hmm. during this ridiculous pandemic time that we're in, uh, I regularly cook for 20 people on the weekends. And when I'm by myself, it's hard to oh. remember <laughs> to put as much effort into feeding myself oh. as I put into cooking for others. And yet it, there's just, it's a, mm-hmm. it's another kindness that we overlook, you know, as a, we circles back to what we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. is we programmed ourselves to think of alcohol as being the only comfort and the only self-kindness. And there's mm-hmm. so many other ways that we can honor ourselves and be good to ourselves. You mentioned your reading chair. I'm curious to know what you reading and if you have any book recommendations for people in recovery? Well, at the moment, I'm reading something called The Vanishing Half. I really, I liked Educated. I thought that was a really good book. I liked that one too. One that um, a group that I'm in read and, and most people enjoyed was called This Tender Land. I tend to read nonfiction more. I am in a couple of book clubs and generally will read fiction, which is good. Somehow I only thought I would learn from nonfiction, but you certainly do learn from fiction as well. What are you reading? Well, my son asked me to read his favorite book. Now he's, he's 29 and uh, <laughs> he's a, he teaches middle school. He loves reading and gets his students to read. And he thought it would be fun if I read this book that he loves because he wanted to be able to talk about it with me. And it's in the fantasy genre. So it's called The Way of Kings. Uh And it's a book I would never have read on my own. It was a thousand pages long and it, it was really good and it was really well done, but it wasn't my thing. But it was quite interesting to read a book knowing it's the favorite book of someone you love because Uh even when I wasn't that interested in it I would think oh 
I bet Craig loved this scene. Oh, yeah, I can see Craig loving this book. (laughs) So I really read it, you know, on two levels, one for myself that was somewhat enjoying it, somewhat indifferent. And then on this other level, you know, as a family member. So that was interesting. But now I'm done that. And I've got a stack by my bed. So I haven't decided which one I'm going to start with, but it'll be definitely more my genre. And I really like that book club kind of book. In literature, it's called upmarket fiction. It's not too literary and it's Mm -hmm. not too commercial. It's sort of in the middle. I really like those kind of stories. And then I'm writing uh, a book as well. And and that's fun too. Sometimes I have to stop reading for a while so that I can write because um, there's too much, yeah. there's too much story in my head and right, it's hard right. to keep it all straight. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to be releasing this fairly close to Christmas. We're recording it a little bit earlier than that, but I'm wondering, uh, you live on your own. What are your plans for Christmas? Will you be able to spend it with family? What does that look like for you? You know, it's really, that is something that I am um, a little nervous about or worried about for myself. My sister normally would come. She lives in uh, Seattle. She's 72, and we're both, you know, nervous about catching COVID, and we're being very careful. So far, neither one of us thinks it's a good idea to fly. I do have a boyfriend, and he has invited me for Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas. I'm not positive that I'm going to do it, so I don't know. I I am a little worried about spending the holidays all alone. I mean, it just doesn't (laughs) sound awful to me. (laughs) So, you know, I like to take care of myself, and it doesn't sound good to me, but uh, if I have to, I will, and I'll just... uh, probably FaceTime with my sister and other family members. And uh, I I worry about uh, families. I mean, I know the poll I have, and I'm really very careful. I can't imagine families, how they're coping with the idea of not being together because of, of COVID. Yeah, it's, a, it's going to be a difficult winter ahead, I think, partly because we have a better understanding of what it means to be isolated and and how to do this properly. And when we first started doing all this last spring, we didn't really know. We kind of eased into it, didn't we? First, it was just, oh, I guess we have to be more careful. Oh, mm-hmm. things are closing. Oh, you know, we step by step. We we slow we eased into it until we we got the hang of how to do it. I remember the first mm-hmm. time I went to a, a grocery store and had my mask on and had to follow the arrows on the floor. And I thought, my goodness, I've been buying groceries my entire life, and it feels like I don't know how to do this all of a sudden. And now we've adapted to it. So in some ways, it it makes it a little bit harder because we we kind of know what we're in for with a few more months of this ahead of us but hopefully you can celebrate mm-hmm. maybe you could celebrate christmas in july on your on your anniversary <laughs> i love mm-hmm. that uh, the 4th of july mm-hmm. which is independence day in the united states is your personal independence I day know. so you get fireworks <laughs> and everything for your I do. I really celebrate one <laughs> on my soberversary. It is. It's. I didn't think about it when I did it, but it has been fun to uh, have that as my my day. It's it's perfect. Well, thank you so much for telling your story and spending time with me today and sharing all of your tools and recommendations and and your story. It's good to hear from you. Thank you for being here, Kathy. Oh, thank you, Jean. And uh, like I said to you, if this helps anyone, um, it, it is so worth it. And uh, the experience of of going over my, you know, my life in, in a lot of ways has really been uh, rewarding. So I, I really appreciate you asking me. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And listeners, if you would like to send a message to Kathy, you can email thebubblehour at gmail.com and I will forward your message on to her. That's all for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take good care.
Just want to be free. 